Listen, where you come from, are there a lot of people without the power and my size? Alexander, where I come from, size, shape, or color makes no difference. And nobody has the power. Bridge to all decks. Welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve with a very special episode for you today. I'm Scott Nance. I'm Steve Morris, and I feel compelled beyond my control to record this podcast with you, Scott. Well, don't uh, let that power to control it go too far, because as you know, Steve Morris, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Joining us as our very, very special guest for today's deep dive of Plato's Stepchildren is, is a friend and professional that I have known for decades, literally decades, since I started reading the official Star Trek fan club magazine, which turned into the communicator, and also the official Star Wars fan club magazine. Dan Madsen, welcome aboard Enterprise Incidents. Hey, thank you, Scott and Steve. I'm so happy to be here, and especially to talk to you today about a uh, episode that um, has a very special place in my heart. Well, well, I know and certainly so many people who know you just by name, Dan, know why why Plato's Stepchildren is very dear to your heart. You've written about it elsewhere. You've talked about it elsewhere. <laughs> now you're going to talk about it with us. Um, yep. but, but, you know, Dan, before you got into Plato's Stepchildren, before that episode really touched you, what episode of Star Trek just kind of, you know, lit your fuse to become like this lifelong fan like we are? Well, if you're saying before... Um... I mean, Plato's Stepchildren was literally the first Star Trek episode that I actually sat down and watched. Um, and I didn't expect to do so on that day. But I would have to say, you know, if there was another episode, um, certainly City on the Edge of Forever. Um, my dad loved that episode and he would watch that with me. And he just he, he thought that was so special. And uh, it is, as we all know, such a special episode. So, yeah, yeah, I'd have to put. I have to put City up there on the very top of the list. Uh, you are you are among many who, who yeah. do just that for many many reasons. Now yeah. now Plato's stepchildren is a, an episode that I have not watched in a long long time. You know there are episodes that I watch on a regular basis just when I'm in the mood to watch Doomsday Machine or Mirror Mirror or City or you know of course Metamorphosis and certainly Day of the Dove is one I watch all the time. And then there are episodes that you know while you know, I like them. I haven't watched them in a while. And then if I just have memories that, that, you know, they weren't episodes that I really liked very much, I haven't watched in a while. And I think in the latter two categories is where I had put Plato's stepchildren for a long, long time. So when I watched it for the preparation of this conversation, gentlemen, there are things about this episode that I, I really came to appreciate on a whole new level. For, for reasons, of course, Dan, I'm alluding to your appreciation of it. And then there are reasons that I've come to appreciate it because of just its, its significance in its place in television history because mm -hmm. of, you know, the kiss. But Absolutely. then during the rewatch, I was rewatching certain scenes that were really difficult to watch. And the reason oh I say that, the reason I say that is because on one hand, the merits of Plato's stepchildren. For one thing, it came out. Are you ready, Steve Morris, Mr. Keeping Track of All the Dates? Yeah, I'm ready. This, this episode aired on November 22nd, 1968, 
the day before this episode was broadcast for the first time at 10 p.m. that Friday night, this guy was brought into this world. So it's quite possible that while my parents were in the hospital watching NBC on Friday, November 22nd, that I too got to see Plato Stuff Children <laughs> in its one and only broadcast network run. It also came out on the day, keeping track of another date, Steve, for my other obsession, the day that the White Album came out, the Beatles. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Classic so- album. It's so funny, Scott, because I knew that we were heading towards these very important dates <laughs> of your and my birth. And mine is coming up soon, too. So, like, that is, it's definitely a fascinating thing that that is when you and I entered the world. <laughs> right, right. Including the world of Star Trek. And, and the world was never the same ever again. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> for sure. So, so, Steve, just over the years, where has Plato's stepchildren been for you and and how was it for you during the rewatch well it's never been an episode that i particularly loved despite the fact that thematically there's a couple of very star trekky things i think there's an incredible guest performance in it and watching it this time i'm not i i can't sugarcoat this at all honestly i hated it i i, <laughs> I really did there, the, there are moments where i go oh that's a good moment or that's a good performance but i found it uh, frankly, torturous to get through, not surprisingly. Yep. I feel the same way to the extent that when I was doing the rewatch, you know, on one hand, watching Plato Stepchildren and seeing the moments between Alexander and Captain Kirk and, you know, very, very Star Trekky type moments that really speak to what Star Trek is all about. The reason that I've loved Star Trek really for as long as I can remember almost my entire life. But then you get to the moments that, that were somewhat like the empath to the extent that I understand why the empath is a polarizing episode. Because for some fans, seeing Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy tortured by the Vians was really, really hard to watch. And I feel the same exact way. So to that extent, in Play the Stepchildren, watching the second act, and especially the, the fourth act when they you know, they're in the togas and Uhura and Chapel being down. Those scenes were indeed hard to watch, to to see these characters, you know, humiliated uh, and, and they are stripped of their dignity. And but at the same time, there there are some great moments. The character arc of Alexander, Michael Dunn's performance is amazing. And just Dan, don't you think that that he goes through a, this great arc where he maintains his dignity and he he. He fights, he stands up for himself. He he fights back against Parman. I think it's such a rousing moment. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that's very true, Scott. And, you know, one of the things that I love about this episode, obviously it has a very personal message for me, but you're right. I mean, Alexander does go through uh, a, a very interesting character arc, and he, he, he shows himself at the end to be much better than any of the others on the planet. And he's... You know, I think he's an admirable character, uh, whether he is a little person like myself or not. He, I think he shows dignity and he shows a strength that um, is something that I, I was quite impressed with. For sure, for sure. And there's also, in addition to the, the, the 
the morale of the story, you know, going back to where no man has gone before that we've seen many times throughout Star Trek in all of its forms, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, there's also something to say about class snobbery and intellectual snobbery. Um, yeah. but, but this is an episode that when it did air on November 22nd, 1968, it's only network airing. It was not given a rerun. It was the 65th episode to air. And while it aired for the first time in the United States on November 22nd, 1968, it did not air in the United Kingdom until December 22nd, 1993. It was banned because of the sadistic elements, which was the same fate that happened to the empath and whom gods destroy. Now, Plato's stepchildren aired between September 9th and September 17th, 1968, so over seven days which made it one day over schedule. It was the 68th episode to film. And because it went one day over schedule, it also went about $7,500 over budget for a total cost of $185,953. So a few things, you know, Steve, I feel like it was just yesterday when you and I started Enterprise Incidents and we were, we were landmarking, oh, this is the first time this happened, or this is the first time that person directed, or this is the first time, you know, such and such scored an episode. Well, this is the last episode to feature an original score, partial, but it was the last episode in which a new score was written for a Star Trek episode. And that score came in from Alexander Courage. Wow. Wow. So fittingly, Alexander Courage wrote the scores for the first two episodes, The Cage and Where No Man Has Gone Before, and here he is doing the score for the last ever episode, the feature of score, which which really brings, uh, at least musically, Star Trek full circle. Plato's Stepchildren was directed by David Alexander. It was his first of two Star Trek episodes he directed. The second, this is going to be an interesting conversation, was... The way to Eden. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a couple, both a couple of winners, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah he sure did. Um, but uh, Alexander had directed TV shows like The Law and Mr. Jones, The Real McCoys, not starring DeForest Kelly. Uh, My Favorite Martian. In fact, he directed ten episodes of My Favorite Martian. Also, Gene Roddenberry's The Lieutenant, F Troop, and The Brady Bunch. Plato's Stepchildren was written by Meyer Dolinsky, his one and only Star Trek teleplay. He also wrote for Mr. Novak, Dr. Kildare, The Outer Limits, Hawaii Five-O, and Canon. When Dolinsky submitted his first story outline on June 10, 1968, the episode was called The Sons of Socrates. When he did his first draft teleplay for August 8th, that's when it was changed to Plato's Stepchildren. He proceeded to a third draft teleplay on August 8th. Arthur Singer did two script polishes on August 29th and September 3rd. And then producer Freddie Freiberger did page revisions September 3rd through September 13th. So, Scott, I have a question for you about that. Sure. It, I, and I've never been able to find this information. And maybe maybe you've read it somewhere based on uh, uh, the people that were involved, but was Alexander always considered to be a little person on that episode? I mean, was it always from the from the get-go? 
Was he always supposed to be a little person? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but what I can tell you, Dan, is that Michael Dunn, Plato's stepchildren was not, not his first almost brush with Star Trek. Really? Because, and I did not know this until I read it on I, memoryalpha.com, but Michael Dunn was one of the early choices that Gene Roddenberry considered to play. Are you ready for this? Mr. Spock. You know, that's so funny you say that. I had no idea that it was Alex, that it was Michael Dunn. But when I interviewed Gene many, many, many years ago, and I was asking about the very beginnings of Star Trek, he told me, he said that, that his initial concept for Spock was that he was a little person. And I, I remember I was just floored by that. But he didn't tell me at the time that Michael Dunn was the possible uh, casting for that. Yeah. So he and he he was quoted as saying, I was considering Michael Dunn, like a pulled quote. And he said, I wanted Spock to look different and be different. And yes, to make a statement about being an outsider looking in. So and and he also it didn't end there for Michael Dunn because he was one of the finalists. Something else I did not know. This is incredible. He was one of the finalists to play Baylock in the Corbomite maneuver. Oh. But that role, of course, went to uh, Ron Howard's brother, Clint. Well, we've already heard about some of the exciting things that happened when this episode aired. But there are also some interesting things that were going on when it was filmed between September 9th and the 17th of 1968. The first is uh, on September 9th. That was the very first U.S. Open tennis tournament uh, in which Virginia Wade defeated Billie Jean King and Arthur Ashe won his first Grand Slam. On September 10th, a fairly obscure Harvard professor had his first contact with presidential candidate Richard Nixon on the phone, and that Harvard professor was Henry Kissinger, oh, wow. who went on to become NSA advisor and, of course, Secretary of State under Nixon. On September 12th, and I can't believe people were talking about this this early, um, MIT began the first research and put out got the first patents of a computer brain interface for prosthetic limbs that just seems way earlier than i thought that was going to happen this, yeah yeah. The, yeah this relates to and obviously that's something that uh we're still working on today although we're much closer to having it work really well uh this relates to another star trek episode something we've talked about before north korea finally allowed foreign journalists to come in and view the crew of the uss pueblo part of the pueblo incident which is an right. inspiration for the enterprise incident uh, and then on September 16th, more Richard Nixon news. He broke precedent. He appeared in an entertainment variety show showing up on Ronan Martin's Laugh-In, where he said, sock it to me. They sock it to him? I've seen that clip, actually. I, yep, I've seen the clip, too. And a lot of people, there was a lot of outrage, by the way, which I didn't know, because presidential candidates shouldn't do that. And there's a lot of people said that, man, his numbers in the polls went right up. And fortunately, we haven't ever mixed entertainment and politics ever since. So it's all. <laughs> yeah, it was the last time that happened. And, uh, <laughs> and then on September 17th, New Guinea was formally incorporated into Indonesia, uh, which I think is, a, you know, a huge thing when one country joins with another country. Uh, shall we go back to the land of ancient Greece, kind of, and enter the world of Plato's stepchildren? I'm really looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> so it starts off with a, a kind of typical Star Trek log that we've got a distress uh, call from some planet where there's supposedly no life on the planet. 
our three main guys, Spock, McCoy, and Kirk, beam down. We hear that this planet is rich in chironide deposits, which is a source of power. That's going to become important later on. We see that it looks like kind of ancient Greasy. We got statues and columns. And then we hear this powerful echoing voice and see this huge shadow. And we hear, Are you from the spaceship Enterprise? I have a vivid memory of watching Plato's Stuption when I was a little, little kid and seeing for the first time that image, that shadow of this, like taking up the whole wall, the lighting. And then as Michael Dunn gets closer, he walks out and he's not, he's not the giant, but, uh, but he does have a giant personality. Like, so what was your, what was your reaction? Just when you just saw, when you saw Michael Dunn, when you saw Alexander walk into the frame on this episode, Dan, I thought I was saying double because, um, to be honest, I, I sat down in front of the TV. My brother was watching the show. I'd never watched Star Trek prior to this. I'd come home, and there's a little backstory as to, as to why I came home and sat down. I looked at him, and I thought, and I remember, it's funny you say that, because I remember the minute I saw Alexander, I looked over at my brother, and he looked over at me. <laughs> and I he just was kind of like pointed at me and pointed at the TV. And I was like, oh, my gosh, he's a little person like me. And that immediately, immediately got my interest to sit there and watch through the rest of that episode. Amazing. That's awesome. This is this thing. um, And like I said, I'm not a big fan of this episode, but I'm a really, really big fan of, of the story that you just told. And this is this thing. You hear these phrases today of diversity matters, representation matters. And this is a perfect example of you getting to see someone on the screen in this great TV show, not necessarily the greatest episode, Nick. that looks like you, that can that, that can be a life-changing moment. Absolutely. And it was. You know, I don't I can't describe it any other way, guys. It it literally was a life-changing moment. And if anybody says a, a TV show can't uh change your life, well, they're full of bunk because this was a defining moment in my life. It took me in a whole direction I never imagined I would go. And it inspired me. And to this day, I I got goosebumps just talking about it. It was that important to me in my life. And, you know, it's funny because it's not a great episode. I'm I'm fully aware of that. (laughs) But because of the element added in there of Alexander, and because it was the first episode of Star Trek I ever saw, you know, I still to this day think fate intervened somehow that had me sit down and watch the TV on that day, and that that was the episode that would come on. Um, I had never been a Star Trek fan. I'd never even considered watching it. So it, you know, it was it was it was fate intervening. I think in my life, uh, you know, I, I feel the same way, Dan. Uh, it was fate that intervened with me getting to watch Mirror Mirror for the very first time when I was six years old, and you and I were affected by Star Trek, you know, probably for for initially different reasons, mm-hmm. but ultimately the same reasons in terms of the aspirational qualities of the stories and certainly our heroes, not just Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, but everyone on that show. Absolutely. And you and I got so involved with this show that in your way and in my way, it not only became a big part of my life, it became a big part of my career. Yes. I owe I owe everything. I owe everything to Star Trek. I would not be in LA if it wasn't for Star. I moved out here to work for creation. So so I I feel like 
everything happened because of Star Trek. And, and to be able to do this podcast with Steve every week and to find new things about the show week after week that I didn't know and look at it with a whole fresh set of eyes has really been so rewarding. And to have you on to talk about how this show impacted you. And I mean, look, you, you like for decades were running the Star Trek fan club and the communicator. I mean, it's huge. <laughs> well, everything you just said, ditto for me. If it wasn't for Star Trek, I wouldn't be anywhere in my life to today. I mean, it's led me down a path that took me to other franchises. Yeah. But without Star Trek, I, I wouldn't, I would not be here talking to you today. And and I, I wouldn't have married my wife. I mean, there's so many ways that I can go back to that moment and watching that episode that said, you know, your life's gonna change after this, Dan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. And, and all of that kind of starts with Michael Dunn. And my guess, Scott, is you might have some more in your notes about You're this right, actor we've been talking about this whole time. Yes, I sure did. Uh, Tell me is, more. He is, are you ready for this? He is an Oscar nominee for the 1965 movie Ship of Fools. He was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. He was also on TV shows like Get Smart, Bonanza, and The Wild Wild West. He is an accomplished singer. I mean, Michael Dunn has an incredible career. I did not know that he was an Oscar nominee, and I didn't know he was a singer. Yep. Um, I know. Uh, he, I know he passed away way too young, but those other things. Those. This is the first time I'm learning that. Well, and I'll say that I, of course, I knew him from Star Trek, but I really knew him from Wild West because he is the, he is Doctor Loveless, one of the big bad guys, <laughs> and he is fantastic. He, you know, was this recurring character you saw over and over again, and that was I haven't watched Wild Wild West in forever, but you when know, I was a kid, I, I loved that show. So did I. Yeah, I loved that show as well. Yeah, he was he was fantastic, and most everybody when I mention. Michael Dunn in the episode of Star Trek, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in the wild, wild west. That's oh. what they remember him for. Oh, wow. yeah. He was, in, he was in many episodes of that. Yeah. Alexander, at your service. I sing, I dance, I play all variety of games, and I'm a good loser, a very good loser. Please uh, try to bear that in mind. <laughs> humble guy. Well, and I think it's key to, I mean, you think of what these last 2,000 years have been like for Alexander. I mean, that's a, you know, we had right. to endure, uh, you know, 15 minutes of torture in this episode. Alexander's <laughs> had to endure it for 2000 years. Well, you know, and two, you know, I don't know if you want me to mention this at the moment, but I, before the episode came on, I was walking home from junior high and there were two kids that were tormenting me on the way home, literally calling me shorty, calling me a midget and shrimp. And I was in tears when I got home. I was literally in tears. It was such a, a, a dramatic confrontation with these two kids as kids can be cruel as we know from time to time oh yeah and i came in and my brother asked if i was all right and i said yeah whatever and i sat down not intending to watch tv with him but he would always come home after school and watch star trek and then here comes alexander on the screen and we shared my first impression of that but then he said something in the episode he said you know that they had always made fun of him and man, I'm telling you, that was like a light bulb going off on my head. I was like, mm. my God, that just happened to me. I just, just came home from school where I was being made fun of because of my size and who I am. And here I'm watching a show with this little guy 
who's saying that they had always been making fun of him. And that was that was so powerful to me on that day. I can't even begin to tell you. I, I understand. I do understand completely. I mean, that's that's a huge thing. That's a huge I, I think particularly as a kid, and, and my guess is all three of us were picked on as kids at one time or another, is that the feeling of loneliness can be really, really profound. Absolutely. And seeing particularly on TV that you're not as alone as you thought you were, that's a big deal. For yeah. sure. And you know, I remember you know, when I was in middle school and high school, yeah, I was absolutely picked on because, uh, among other things, because I was very vocal about my love of Star Trek and Star Wars. And I would, you know, go to the conventions and, you know, for, I would wear the, you know, the, the Delta shield on my t-shirt, you know, and, you know, many years later, <clears throat> when there was a, when there was a teaser trailer for Star Trek 60 Undiscovered Country, the earliest teaser trailer showed footage of the episodes and the voiceover was describing, you know, the Enterprise crew as uh, as our friends, and that was how I felt about about the this crew. I mean, I I love Next Gen, I love Deep Space Nine, but it, you know, it is it is this crew that, like Dan and like you, Steve, uh, just had a much much bigger impact on me beyond just being a really great TV series. Yeah, I wanted to go live with them on the Enterprise. Uh, you know, it didn't take long after watching several episodes that I thought, man, I, I want to be there. That's where I want to be yeah. on the Enterprise. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Unfortunately, we're not on the Enterprise right now. We're on <laughs> the planet Plutonia or whatever, <laughs> whatever the name is. And that's what we hear right now, because Alexander explains that. Our native star is Sandra. Millennia ago, just before it went Nova, we managed to escape. Our leader liked Plato's ideas, Plato, Platonius. Here's a minor objection I have to this episode, and it's okay. stupid. And I'm going to acknowledge that it's a dumb yeah. objective. Part of it be is because I just recently listened to a whole bunch of lectures on Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. And the, watching this thing, I'm like, what the hell does any of this have to do with Plato? It doesn't make any sense. And they go through this totally convoluted origin story about how they became Platonians. That has nothing to do with anything. And I'm just like, why... Why are these Plato's stepchildren? Why bother with all that? Is it just for the cheap sets and costumes? Is that it? <laughs> I'll tell you, it's, that's exactly what it is. Because first of all, ninety percent of this episode was filmed on two sets, uh, and and they were on the uh, you know just uh, it was Parman's quarters, and then there was the big the big chamber where all the torture takes place. Uh, but also, one of the one of the benefits that came from the merger when Desi Lu got bought out by Paramount was that. Now Star Trek had access to all these props and costumes. So those props and costumes were sitting right there. Like, how do we use them? Oh, let's make the episode like Greek and Plato and Plato's stepchildren. So there's your answer, Steve. <laughs> Ugh. Talk about the tail wagging the dog. I mean, yeah. it just is such a, like, I'm, you know me, I, I really believe that one of the key skills of a filmmaker is actually to be cheap and figuring out how to make, how to stretch resources. That is, as an independent filmmaker, that's what I've done my whole life, is figuring out how to, I think that's awesome. But going, gee, I have these costumes, I guess I need to figure out a story to put them in. It's not a good way to make good television. <laughs> and then the next moment, we see start to move in this strange way. And he says, excuse me, uh, someone's waiting for you. And we head into this bigger room. Welcome to our Republic. Who among you is the physician? So this is Thalana. 
And if she looks familiar, that's because she's played by Barbara Babcock, who was on camera as Maya Three in A Taste of Armageddon back in the first season. But if her voice sounds familiar, well, you might recognize her as Trillian's mother in The Squire of Gothos, or you might not recognize her voice because it was altered for Assignment Earth. She was the voice of Lost Skeen in the Tholian Web, and she oh. was the voice of uh, one of the devils in uh, the Lights of Zetar, the uh, Exorcism episode. <laughs> wow, I, kn- I knew none of that. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and despite not li- liking this episode very much, I think she does a really good job playing a fairly evil person. Yeah, she does. Um, but right now we're pretending not to be evils. McCoy says that he's the physician, and we see that the problem is her husband, Parman, who is lying down on some sort of divan, and there's something wrong with his leg. So Parman is played by Liam Sullivan, who was familiar to people watching The Twilight Zone, The Untouchables, Perry Mason, and then in later years, Falcon Crest, Dynasty, Dallas, and Knott's Landing. He must like those soap operas. Or they like him. Or they like him. (laughs) And McCoy goes over and looks at the leg and has a reaction of just like, whoa! (laughs) (laughs) So clearly his leg is very messed up. There's an infection that should have been attended to a long time ago. Infection is massive. Let me give you a hypo to ease the pain. And he opens up his little medical pouch. And instead of him grabbing the hypo, it floats up out into the air. And and you could tell right now, and one of the benefits I have to say of not watching Plato's stepchildren in many, many years is that a lot of the actions and the reactions were fresh to me. And I literally went to myself, uh, you know, I wrote down in my notes when McCoy's hypo was lifted without his using it. I wrote, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are in real trouble. <laughs> and, and Steve, you mentioned sort of that well reaction that McCoy has looking at Parman's uh, infection. McCoy saw the infection, but we did not because right. NBC strictly said in their notes to the Star Trek producers, do not show the infection on Parman's leg. So that's why no one else saw it. It makes sense. I, I, I didn't want to see it either. <laughs> I'm kind of cool with that. You know, every every time I see the things floating around, like like the hypo, I keep trying to look for the strings that are wires that are attached to it, moving it, moving it, because they didn't have the the visual effects technology like we have today. That, by the way, that, that's a great point, and I was looking for that too, and I couldn't see them. And I this could. is on I right. Know. This is on a high definition, totally remastered. Which, which, by the way, Star Trek has never looked better than it does now, but I could not see the wires, but it was because of the trick of having things float around, especially as the episode progresses. This is the reason why uh, why the show went over schedule, and, and that just got compounded on day seven when the NBC suits showed up because they were concerned about the kiss, but more on that later. Again, it just shows of this, you know, penny wise, but pound foolish philosophy. If they go, okay, let's do a show where we could just use all the sets and costumes we have in stock. Oh, let's add a whole bunch of effects, practical effects that we have to do that are going to take us way more time and slow us down and cost us more money. That's what happened. (laughs) But Parman injects himself in the arm. And at this moment, Alexander goes to Falana and says, They came to help. They deserve better than to die. And she forces him to bite his own finger and says, Alexander, you've talked too much. 
And what did you think of that zoom in onto Alexander's really concerned face uh, when you saw this early on, Dan? Immediately, it showed me that he had compassion and he was also uh, a man of, uh, you know, he cared about people. He also cared about being fair to these guys that came down there to help Harmon. And so, yeah, I mean, once again, I think it showed me that this is a character that you can emulate and, and love because he is a noble character. You know, he might be four feet tall, but he's also uh, he's more normal, no, more noble than any of the others on, on that planet. That's for sure. I just remember being even when I was a little kid watching Star Trek on WPHL Channel 17 Philadelphia. I always liked Alexander. Mm-hmm. He had a heart of gold. He like you said, Dan, he cared about people. You know, he had such dignity. Yeah. And there's a great moment that's that that comes up when, you know, things really get very, very serious. But I'll, I'll save it for when we get to that point. We come back in Act 1 and uh, we see McCoy, you know, still examining Parman. And Alexander is on not exactly a giant chessboard, but something kind of like it, playing a game of giant whatever it is. And we yeah. hear a little more detail in the captain's log about this really convoluted origin story, which is... After the sun went Nova, they came to Earth in the time of Socrates and Plato, liked it so much that when they went to this planet, they decided to pattern their society after, I'm assuming, Plato's Republic, even though none of that has anything to do with anything we're seeing whatsoever. So, Steve, I I took a note down, like during this captain's log that opens up Act 1, massive exposition dump. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, you and I have talked about that many times. And the reason, you know, of course, like the captain's logs, like, that was the purpose was to have these sort of moments of exposition to just sort of like catch you up or fill you in or where you're at right now. But in this case for Plato's stepchildren, Roddenberry had sent notes to Freiberger about the episode. The notes did not really hit his desk until the episode was in production. Mm. But there were notes that Freiberger actually like liked so when it came time to do the uh, the captain's log, the voiceover, which was done in post-production, they addressed his concerns in the captain's log. So that's why it feels like there's a little bit more exposition there. And that is not a good solution to addressing story concerns. It, it's, that's, <laughs> that's exactly where captain's logs are not going to work well. Um, uh, Alexander uh, loses his game. Did he lose on purpose? Yeah, I, I think he did. <laughs> I think he did, too. I, yeah, I do, too. I right after 2,500 years, you're damn ready. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we get to see the jerky other Platonians be, you know, make fun of him. And it's, and then uh, Kirk and Spock are talking to Falana and they ask how long she's had her powers. And she starts to say, Two and a half. But stops herself and then says, Ever since our arrival here on Platonius. Why'd she do that? Because I think they know what the origin of the power is. If you're here long enough, I think so. She doesn't want them to know that. But then the way she covers it up doesn't quite make sense either, because she basically gave the same piece of information. So I I think it's I think that's the idea, but it doesn't work well. And then we also hear that the powers are transmitted with brainwaves. And as we ask, do these waves cease while you are asleep? Which is key because Parman's delirium in a few moments is going to show that clearly they don't. And then we ask, why don't you have any doctors? Because they don't need them. Because they've been bred in a eugenics program, and they're really in perfect health, so they don't need doctors. They're only 38 people, perfect for their utopia. And then she says, We're bred for contemplation and self-reliance and longevity. 
How old would you say I am? I think this is a fun moment. Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole of the whole episode. Yeah, because she confidently says, "Oh, don't be afraid. I'm not vain." And Spock, in the coldest, harshest sort of ways, goes thirty-five. <laughs> I, I just love that moment, I, and the way Nimoy just says it nonchalantly. You know, it, as Spock is just that's that one. That one always cracks me up. I love that. That old. I stopped aging at thirty. Well, anyway, you're off by two thousand years. I'm two thousand three hundred years old. Which totally ruins the fact that she stopped herself from saying how long they had been there before, because now she just revealed it all, mean, making right. that moment True. not useful. True. So you see, we scarcely have to move anymore, let alone work. That's why you have no resistance. That's right. Uh, a break in the skin or a cut can uh, be fatal. Which also makes me go, well, this must have come up before. So you probably should have had a doctor, you know, if a, if a cut can be fatal. But the next moment is Parman kind of moaning in pain. And as he moans in pain, suddenly statues start flying around and things start breaking. Fascinating. I believe we're experiencing the psychokinetic manifestations of Parman's delirium. But it's not limited to what's on the planet, is it? Nope. Because no. The Enterprise is getting shaken by all of this. Engines at full speed. Get her out of orbit and into space. What's going on, sir? She's locked tight. And there's nothing you can do but pass down on weather. Back on the planet, Kirk says, Bones, knock him out. And Bones goes to give him a shot, and he gets thrown across the room and up against the wall. This is starting to turn into a real problem. And, uh, and not only is uh, McCoy not able to give him the hypo, but then Alexander is getting thrown around. And there was also concern from NBC to not make his size be ridiculed in any way. So, like, what happens to him has to happen to the other people. Interesting. Right? Like, there can't be anything that happens deliberately to Alexander that doesn't happen to Kirk and Spock and McCoy or, you know, well, the, the three of those guys. And, I mean, they, and you know, they, they, they do that. Like, I mean, you know, it's certainly... I feel like, and I felt this from an early age, and certainly Alexander's purpose there was was to be used and humiliated for all that time, which is remarkable that after 2,300 years, he could maintain his dignity for that long. I know. But when Alexander is getting thrown around, so Kirk like goes to his rescue. Kirk tries to help him. And then some invisible force is punching Captain Kirk. And- I, I got to say that watching William Shatner flinch from <laughs> punches that aren't really there, I thought he did a pretty good job. I, yeah, I did, actually. So two two things. First of all, I think that's a really weird note from the network yeah. because the, the that's what the episode is about, is these horrible people that are being horrible to this guy. I know. So saying, yeah. you know, I mean, like, what what is your point there? The whole point is to get past that because those are the bad guys. That seems weird. And, and I am... I'm not on Team Kirk getting hit. I, I am so tired at this point in the show of watching Shatner react to things that aren't there and being in pain and doing all. I just, I, it, it's, 
it's too much for me. I, I, I and, and I think it's something they asked him to do way too often. And I think it's something where his overplaying things is just really comes out. So I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't mince your words, Steve. What do you really think? Well, what I really think is that we got to knock this guy Parman out. And finally, <laughs> uh, his wife covers up his eyes, which gives him a moment to McCoy a moment to give him a shot. But Alexander is still. Cho- is now choking himself. Bones! Shake him! Break his concentration! And finally, he does, and Alexander is able to let go. But, you know, Kirk came to his rescue. I, yes. I think this is just the beginning of the special relationship that Alexander has. Alexander, show our guest to the South Wing. Oh, thank you. We must return to the ship. I think I better wait until the fever breaks. Well... In that case, we'll stay. Alexander guides them out, and when we're back in the south wing, he says... Anything you want, just ask me anything. Thank you, Alexander. Well, think nothing of it. You saved my life. Listen, I think I should tell you that... And then Alexander doesn't continue. Tell me what. Well, just that I never knew any people like you existed. What was he about to say that he didn't say? I don't know, because I actually never gave that a second thought. I just thought he was... You know, he didn't realize there were people that were taller than him that could still be treated the way he is. I think that's definitely true. But I think what he didn't say is they're going to kill you. Oh, that's what he didn't say. Right. Well, he alludes later on. He said, I should have warned you. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, But, But I think I think right now the way that Alexander is looking so admirably, especially towards Captain Kirk, because for. 2300 years or however long they've been there a long 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 time alexander has gotten used to being treated and humiliated a certain way miraculously holding on to his dignity holding on to ideals of what is actually good in a person and now here stands in front of him three people three people who are the same size as the plutonians but three people who are proud noble dignified people that he never knew existed, and here they stand. And they treat him as an equal. They don't look absolutely. Him, they don't look down upon him. They're not making fun of him. They're not, you know, kicking him around. And he realizes that, you know, maybe there is somebody else outside of this planet that has the ability to see beyond the outside and, and value what's on the inside. Absolutely. Well, and this is a moment where that gets tested a little bit because they say. Are there other Platonians like you? And he has a reaction, and you could see the defenses pop right back up. Absolutely. And he says, What do you mean like me? What I love about the scene, Dan, is Alexander responds, What do you mean people like me? And he's defensive about it. And he's automatically assuming that Kirk is referring to his size. So Alexander, if you would have said, What do you mean because of my size? They would have said no. But all Alexander said was, what do you mean people like me? And without missing a beat, Kirk says, you know, people who don't have the power. His size is like, makes no difference at all to to the Enterprise crew. And they're not talking about his size. They say, who don't have the psychokinetic ability. I just love that the answer that Kirk gave him had nothing to do with his size. Absolutely. And that that was refreshing to me because I can't tell you uh, how many times growing up I had people say, well, what's your family like? Do you have others at home like you? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like short like me, you know? Um, So, I mean, I, I could relate to his, 
kind of defensiveness. And the way Kirk came right back was just so refreshing. <laughs> it was really amazing. Well, and I think there's an important distinction between someone realizing that someone might be sensitive about a thing and responding to protect their sensitivity and someone who literally wasn't even thinking about that thing. Right. Is that Kirk, it never even occurred to him about Alexander's size. That's just his size. Why would, it, why would he care? He, he is genuinely just asking about the psychokinetic ability and Alexander senses that. Um, I might not be a fan of this episode, but I'm a huge fan of Michael Dunn. And I think Amen. he does a fantastic job. And in this little speech, he's just great. To answer your question, I'm the only one who doesn't have it. I was brought here as the court buffoon. That's why I'm everybody's slave and I have to be 10 places at once and I never do anything right. And there's this great smiling, self-deprecating quality to how he says all that, you know? It's a, I'm a throwback and so are you, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Don't worry about it. It's like he's bonding with them be, be out of their de- what he sees at this point as their deficiencies. Right. Regarding, like, not having the power. We're happy with them. You know, I believe you are. Kirk has seen the results of having godlike powers, and it's never good. <laughs> no. And then he asks, and this is, you know, I think this is the peak moment of the episode. I agree. Where you come from? Are there a lot of people without the power and my size? Alexander, where I come from, size, shape, or color makes no difference. And nobody has the power. Dan, when you watch this episode and he says that with such pride and in a way to connect with Alexander, like, my friend, you are in great company. Like, what was your, and I agree, Steve, this is a wonderful moment. What was this like for you, Dan? You know, I have, I said it before, I have goosebumps talking about it because, uh, And sometimes I actually even get a little emotional because it was a life changing moment for me um, to sit there and, you know, hear him ask that question. And then to hear Kirk say, Alexander, where I come from, size, shape or color makes no difference. And it was to me, it was the essence of what Star Trek is, um, that everyone is accepted. Everyone has value. We all live comfortably and in peace with one another. Um, and it, it just, uh, I can't tell you after the moment of coming home from school that day and coming home and watching that, it, it said to me that, you know, this is the world I want to live in and this is where I'd like to be. And so I did because after that, I literally came home every day after school and watched Star Trek reruns and I went out to wherever I could find it. And I put posters of Star Trek all over my wall, pictures all over my wall, because that was the only way I could actually live in the world of Star Trek. I couldn't actually go there. But when I would go to my bedroom and close the door, there were the Enterprise crew all around me, you know, and I could it would reminded me that there is a better world that perhaps maybe someday what Kirk said would come true. Um, And especially after that bad afternoon. I really needed that encouragement. And that was, uh, it was life-changing. You know, Hands down, it was a life-changing moment. Dan, I got to tell you that to, to have the experience you have coming home from school and then have the experience watching this episode where they are literally talking to you, 
Like, yes. Like what, what a moment. And I, I'm wondering if when you had the chance to tell how much this, this episode and how much this show has meant to you, to Roddenberry or to Shatner. That was probably some of the highlights of my time working directly with Star Trek was being able to sit down in a private room and talk with Gene Roddenberry about all kinds of things Star Trek. But when I came to that point, I could tell he was very moved by what I said and how that episode really moved me. And he shared a story of, uh, of a handicapped man that came up to him at a convention and he said he couldn't understand what he was saying. He, he had a speech impediment of some sort, but he said he could make out enough of what he was saying. And what it was, was that he was talking about this one thing in this one episode that meant so much to him. And he said, you know, yes, he said, that's, that was the moment I realized that what I was doing was important. And the same thing with Shatner, you know, when I, when I got to interview uh, Shatner at his office out in L.A., I, I brought that story to him mm. and I told him. And I swear to you, at the moment I told him that, he just looked me straight in the eyes and he said, oh, my God. You know, he said, he said, I've got goosebumps. He actually said, he says, Dan, thank you so much for sharing that story. He said, I had no idea how important that was to you. And and I, I swear, I think I saw him tear up a little bit because I told it as dramatically as I could because it was so important to me. And there I am now, you know, it's like, you know, reality, fiction becoming reality because there I am sitting with the man that played Captain Kirk yeah. telling him that, you know, it's, it's also kind of almost kind of cosmic. I don't know how to describe it. The fact that I, fate brought me home to watch that show and that's years later there i am getting to tell that man that said those lines that made such an impression on me um and in turn he seemed to be moved by what i told him so you know there's there's great things at work in the universe who knows this this is what star trek is all about amen absolutely scott this is what star i mean dan there's a i think it's your might might be your your uh, profile picture on Facebook mm -hmm. is a view with Shatner. Yes. That looks like it was taken maybe back in the eighties or the nineties. And I wanted to ask you that question for really, really like decades. Like here's Captain Kirk talking to Alexander in a way that you're watching this from home and it's speaking to you. And now you're getting to tell this guy, I mean, granted it's the actor, not the character, but still there's a lot of cat. There's a lot of Shatner and Captain Kirk advice. Absolutely. So like, what a uh, cosmic is a word. I think meta is yes. a word. <laughs> yes. Right. Amazing. This is a, yes. and, and it's, it's such a great moment because the way that Kirk says to Alexander, you know, he says uh, where I come from size, shape, color makes no difference. And then he pauses and he goes, and nobody has the power. And Alexander says, nobody. And Kirk is just looking at him. He's eating his apple. And he just like shakes his head with a smile on his face. Like, nope, nobody's got the power. How, how about that? Yeah. It's yeah. Great. He, I, I love the way Shatner delivered those lines. Yeah. I really do. I, I think he, you know, irregardless of all the things about the episode that all three of us would say, you know, well, that was questionable. I think at that moment, Shatner handled it extremely well. You know what's occurred to me in, in listening to the, the story, and I agree with Scott, that is a really powerful story. 
is that here we have this episode that isn't that great an episode, but has at least two really important things happen. And what is occurring to me is that the main thing that if you ask the world, what do they know about this episode? It's about the kiss. Yeah. And in fact, this is the important moment in the episode, not the kiss. The kiss, mm -hmm. there's, we'll, we'll obviously get to it, but like this is one of the great articulating the philosophy that makes us love Star Trek. I don't like the episode, but I definitely like this idea. And I don't think it's articulated any better anywhere else in all of Star Trek. I agree. I agree. Steve, completely. I completely agree. Um, but the episode is, you know, kind of broken because Alexander is once again grabbed and pulled away. He says, somebody wants me and he's gone. Captain, it will be very gratifying to leave here. Uh, I mean, what have you ever heard Spock say, like, like basically say, Captain, let's get let's the hell get out of here. Out of here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are already seeing the problem, which is that if Parman dies, it's not going to go well. But if Parman lives, it might not go well. Right. Because he's not going to want people to find out about this place. Jim, my concoction actually worked. The fever's broken. And what recuperative powers? The infection's begun to drain already. Dr. McCoy, you may yet cure the common cold. If there ever was a time to get out of here, it's now. Kirk to Enterprise, got to come in. But there is a problem. Everything no. is frozen. Yep, <laughs> nothing's that. working. They're locked into the orbit. They can't call Starfleet. There is big trouble. And Kirk says, all right, I'll handle it down here. We cut to the main room. Alexander is singing and playing the lyre. And he does have a very nice voice. He does. He does. Forward, forward in our plan. We proceed as we began. Wait, let me ask you a question. So Alexander is playing, he's singing, he's playing the lyre. And he's singing quite beautifully. But when Kirk walks in the room, he... Like, yeah. 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 What is, is that part of the song? I, you know what? I've wondered the same thing. I thought, what is he saying? And then it sounds like he goes, call Max, call Max. What, what is that? I still haven't figured that out. Here's what I think it is, but I don't think it works. Is what I think it is, is that he has, Alexander hasn't chosen to sing. Parman is forcing him to sing the way that he will later force Spock to sing. And when his attention is distracted by Kirk, it essentially becomes a broke, a skipping record is that he leaves Alexander sort of in the lurch, unable to complete the song, but not quite released. And so he goes, rec -ec 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 and you know, that, that's, that's my explanation. I watched it with the subtitles on for that very reason to kind of see if there was like, you know, like maybe the subtitles would pick up what he was actually saying, but it didn't. Um, and I have, I've no more clued into what he actually said before than, <laughs> than I am now. And uh, me neither. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's, it's kind of a, an ominous moment yeah. because it's happening when Kirk is walking in and Kirk walks in without Kirk and Spock, the demeanor between Kirk and Parman is still, courteous but there's a little there's a little undercurrent going on there that does not get any better it's about to get much worse your excellency oh, our man will do philosopher kings have no need of titles you know he's saying no i'm just a dude just like you yeah. <laughs> that's not yeah, gonna sure. last <laughs> and kirk is asking what's going on with my with the enterprise and parman tries to tell him that he's wrong parman i've talked to the engineer aboard the ship we've showed our good faith 
Now you show yours. I want the ship released immediately. So Kirk is no longer messing around. And Parman does not like his tone. The amenities, Captain. Allow me to remind you that I am the head of this principality. Guests, do not come barging in here, making demands and issuing orders. And he uses his powers to take Kirk's phaser from him. Guests, you don't know the meaning of the word. Guests aren't treated like common prisoners. And we cut to Alexander, and Alexander knows what's going to come next. Yeah, yeah. he's yeah. like shaking his head, like, like don't, no, don't. Yeah. Alexander's going, oh, crap. Here we go. <laughs> Do not take that tone with me. And Kirk's hand starts to move of its own volition. He's and, trying to fight it. And then he slaps himself over and over again, faster and faster. He's hitting himself until we fade out. It's a hell of a way to act end act one. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it is. It really is. It, absolutely. And that is our first bit of torture and humiliation <laughs> that we're going to see. There's going to be a lot more. It gets worse. <laughs> I, I actually timed it because I was curious what percentage of this episode was torture. I'll let you know when we get to the end. It's a big number. <laughs> oh, that um, should be interesting. Uh, we come back in act two. Now we can't call the Enterprise at all. And Parman would not have treated you so brutally if he had any intention of releasing you or the Enterprise. And then McCoy stands up awkwardly, the way we've seen Alexander move before. Where you going? I don't know. I don't want to go, but I can't help myself. And then Kirk and Spock are grabbed. And my note here is, I hate all of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, this from this point forward, the entire second act is going to be difficult to watch. Definitely. Anyone who who did not like the empath because they did not like seeing Spock or rather Kirk and McCoy tortured in such a way, that was nothing uh, compared to the way that, I mean, look, in the empath, they're tortured with pain. In, in Plato's stepchildren, they're tortured not only with pain because this has got to hurt, but the humiliation and being stripped of their dignity right. is it's just like, I mean, you know, these are Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And to watch this happen to our heroes and have it like it just keeps going and going, that's what's hard to watch. And that's well, that's why I understand the uh, resistance to the episode. Well, mm-hmm. and, I, I, and I think there are two important distinctions. The, the first important distinction is that basically in the empath, they start the torture and cut away. So the actual amount of time that you see them on screen being tortured it's probably under a minute, you know, it's maybe 45 seconds. You see a couple of winces from Kirk hanging from the thing. You see a couple of winces from McCoy, and then you see the results. This is not that this is, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at it. That's the first thing. The second is it's psychological because it's not just pain. As Scott, as you said, it's humiliation. And the third thing, and maybe this is just me, but in general, I think asking actors to act like they're not in control of their own body, trying to fight their own body, gets old real quick for me. It's just not something that I think is good. And so now we have torture, humiliation that goes on and on with an acting thing that I don't think particularly works well. You know, And then also it's I mean, look, uh, you've made your point early on with this. Yeah. For it to keep going. It's also in addition to being hard to watch, it's also awfully redundant. It is redundant, and it's also redundant. 
I agree. Yeah. I've often wondered through all of these torture scenes. I've never seen, you know, I used to own all the blooper reels. I don't remember any bloopers from this episode. Do you guys? No, not one. Because I thought, you know, when just this kind of silly, bizarre things they're meant to made to do, you know, I'm tweedledeen, I tweedled. I just wondered yeah. if there is like any if they had fun, any outtake kind of just... that they laughed when they're trying to do the rehearsal or something for it, you know? Yeah, I've never seen one. One, you're right. It's a really good point. You would think that this episode would be would be uh, the pick of the litter with yeah, with bloopers, but not really. I'm sure you know the bloopers much better than me. Are there a lot of clips from the third season? Uh, I it wasn't until years later that I saw clips from season three mm-hmm. uh, because for a long time, Dan, right there, the most of the uh, clips from the blooper reel were were those really super faded clips that were shown at the conventions back in the, like yep. the late seventies. That's right. And, and also on the Roddenberry Vault from the Blu-ray release from 2016, there's a there's a, a gag reel uh, that mm-hmm. has a lot of stuff, but nothing nothing that I remember seeing from Plato's stepchildren. But right now, things where it's not torture, we're going to say thank you, and we have very nice gifts. We have the actual shield carried by Pericles. We give all <laughs> that give that to to Kirk. A harp for Mister Spock, and scrolls that were penned by Hippocrates himself for the Doctor. And I'm like, okay, obviously, first of all, the props are terrible, and they don't look like ancient things in any way. And second of all, even if I wanted to get the hell out of here, and you handed me a scroll that was written by Hippocrates, I'd be like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, but. Needless to say, they're not that impressed with the uh, with the presence. Has the Enterprise been released yet? Yeah, like he goes right to it. Like, yeah. Thanks. I'm going to go back to what I asked you at the end of Act One. Has the Enterprise been released yet? And Parman is trying to make nice a little bit. He says it was his illness that made him do that horrible stuff. So please find it in your heart to forgive me. And I love that Kirk, without missing a beat, goes, certainly. Has the Enterprise been released yet? Yeah, <laughs> ask again. Right. <laughs> It will be shortly, and good day, and thank you for the presence. <laughs> <laughs> and they start to leave, and then Parman drops the hammer, which is... Yeah, he goes, oh, hang on a minute, one more thing. And which this is, is a big hammer to drop. Which is they want McCoy to stay. Oh. And at first they're asking kind of nicely, and he says no. And then he says, and this is a line that says, I'm not really asking. We should like to keep it cordial, but... Uh, We are determined to have you stay, Doctor. Kirk tries to step in. I am losing patience, Captain. And you consider yourself a disciple of Plato? And again, I go, I don't know what the hell any of this has to do with Plato. (laughs) I admit that circumstances have forced us to make a few adaptations of Plato, but ours is the most democratic society conceivable. Anyone can, at any moment, be or do anything he wishes, even to becoming ruler of Platonius. If his mind is strong enough. That has nothing to do with democracy. No. <laughs> so this sentence he's just said makes no sense. And then Kirk brings up Alexander getting pushed around and Parman says, Farewell, Captain. Kirk and Spock turn to go. McCoy doesn't move. Something's holding him there. I can't move, Jim. And again, McCoy's basically saying, I won't stay willingly. And Parman makes a fist. And now we enter the torture. Let the torture begin. <laughs> First, Kirk and Spock get little garlands on their head. They drop to their knees. And the f- 
Alexander starts drumming, and we do the, as you mentioned before, the Tweedledee and Tweedledum dance. I'm Tweedledee, he's Tweedledum. All this, by the way, the Tweedledee and the Tweedledum. Kirk writhing on the ground, reciting Shakespeare. Being your slave, what should I do but tend upon the hours and times? And then Spock's dance around Kirk's head. And then when he falls to the ground and starts laughing. (laughs) And then just on the flick of a switch crying we can't let him die laughing can we <laughs> which by the way is an is a marvel of of acting on the on the part of Nimoy that he's laughing hysterically and he immediately starts crying uh and then of course piece de resistance of Alexander riding Kirk like a horse all of that happened all of that happened on day four of filming Plato's Stepchildren. So in this moment, with Spock both first laughing and then crying, and McCoy saying you can't force emotion out of him, that essentially forcing emotion out of a Vulcan's going to kill him, which is sort of an interesting thing we haven't heard before. There's two possibilities, it seems to me. One is that Parman is manipulating his body to do laughing and do crying. And the other is that he's manipulating his emotions to feel things funny and feel really sad. Which one is happening? I think that Parman is forcing Spock to laugh and forcing Spock to cry. I think he is forcing his, his emotions in the same way that he is forcing him physically to dance around Kirk's head. So is he feeling really, really sad when he's crying. He alludes to it that he is, isn't he? Because I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but you know, at the one point after that, he's kind of, he almost seems like he's contemplating, like he has to deal with the fact that he just went through these amazing, you know, swings of emotion. And so it, it makes me almost feel like, you know, it wasn't just surface. He really was feeling these things, which, was it's disturbing to him as a Vulcan. That's what I think the implication is, that he is feeling these yeah. things. I also don't think it makes sense. I also don't think it's well set up. I, I think they, they had an idea that, oh, laughing's going to kill a Vulcan, and that's what they went with, but they didn't really do it very well. I do like, by the way, Michael Dunn's trying to comfort Spock yes. when he's weeping. I think, he, you know, again, I yeah. like, that, like him a lot. Shows his compassion. He's sitting there kind of patting him on the back, you know. Um, and you can see on Alexander's face how tormented he is and how sad he is to watch Spock go through this. And, you know, just to go back to when, Scott, you were talking about Kirk, um, you know, crawling on the floor and such. And then that I still remember, even as a kid watching this, that that moment when he's on his back and and then he starts screaming, he goes, ah! You yeah, know, that, yeah. that was disturbing, quite frankly. I, that was a disturbing moment because he just like he looks like he's just being utterly tortured at that moment, you know. And even even when when Spock starts crying, you know, Kirk is like basically trapped on his back, picks up his head. He's trying so hard to speak. And he says to Spock, Don't let them break you and yeah, you know what, Steve, I think I think you and Dan are both right. I think that the, the laughing and the crying is because 
because that was what Spock was feeling. I mean, he is half human, so it's not like he would have to try very hard. He has laughed before. He has cried before in the naked time and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, yep. but I think that's why in the beginning of the next act, like, you know, Spock is all freaked out because he's been, he like was forced to feel really genuinely feel these emotions. But I'd like, isn't it at this point when Kirk starts acting like a horse and Alexander says to Parman, just really going for it, standing up for himself. Shame to be a Platonian. Shamed. That to me was another little moment that showed me in my mind that Alexander was a hero because he was standing up. And and I thought, you know, it took a little bit of balls to do that because who knows, he'd take him take him up there and throw him against the wall or something, you know. I think it takes huge courage. Yeah, it really took a lot of courage to yeah. say that and stand up for these guys who he just met not that long ago, but he's watching what they're doing to him and he's got some morality and some uh, you know, some compassion. And he's saying, this is not cool, guys. This is not this is not how you treat people. Totally. And to watch this made him feel disgusted that he was even of the same race as them. So, Dan, I'm curious, like when 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 you're watching this and you're just feeling the connection because of how personal this was for you. But then you're seeing the way that Kirk, Spock and McCoy are held against their will. Uh, during this, the the entire second act like this? Like, what, what did you have like conflicting feelings? Like, hey, I'm, I'm loving this because it's speaking to me, but, you know, I have a problem with, with what's happening here. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, there were the, the moments, especially when Alexander gets on Kirk's back and he starts neighing, you know, as a horse, you know, that, that moment I remember thinking, well, this is a little silly. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the one thing that, once again, I was focused on Alexander and the fact that Alexander showed such disgust and sadness, you could see the sadness in his eyes, watching these people who he was a part of treating these these three people in the way they were. And you saw him, you know, when Spock's crying and, and, and he puts his hand on his back and starts patting it like, you know, it's all right, it's okay, you know. Um, once again, I thought to myself, you know, well, that's how I would have reacted. Mm. I would have done the same thing. I would have said, I'm disgusted to be a part of this. You know, who the hell are you doing these things to these people? They came here and they helped us and you repay them by torturing them and humiliating them. Well, in some ways, I, I, I think it's a good moment in that, you know, it's one thing to endure someone doing something to you and quite another to watch them do it to somebody else. Absolutely. And as you said, this ends with Kirk acting as a horse and Alexander riding him. And my note here is I just wrote, this is all so dumb. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 this is the thing. It manages to be both painful and upsetting and just stupid. That, yeah. That's my feeling about it. And so the first yeah. Kirk slapping himself was 30 seconds long. This was seven minutes. From Whoa. Seven minutes from when really? they threw them the garlands until the end of the second act. That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, you know, that when, when Kirk and McCoy are hanging there and they're being tortured by the Vians, you know, that was maybe like maybe uh, a 45 second to a minute. Maybe, yeah. Uh, not this. We come back in Act 3. Spock is focused very, very hard. Can you do anything for him? There is no medicine that can help him. He'll have to come through this himself. I really do think that, we, you know, we have this idea that Spock has been trying to repress his emotions, and that's central to Star Trek, obviously. This idea that emotions will kill him is is a huge 
step beyond that that it's a I leap. don't like. It's a big it, leap. I don't like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Kirk gets up moving stiffly and Spock says, I trust they did not injure you too much, Captain. I'm like, you never touched him as far as we saw. So how would you have injured him? Yeah. The humiliation must have been most difficult for you to bear. I can understand. And then we get into this conversation of whether it's better essentially to release emotions or to repress emotions. However, I have noted that the healthy release of emotion is frequently very unhealthy for those closest to you. That's a great line. Good line. That's it is. Line. I think this next moment is interesting uh, where Spock asks, Do you still feel anger toward Parman? And Kirk says, with a lot of intensity. Great anger. And you, Dr. McCoy? Yes, Spock. And hatred. Then you must release it, gentlemen, as I must master mine. Which I like the idea that, oh, you humans, you got to release your emotions. I, Vulcan, have to control my emotions. They have evoked such great hatred in me. I cannot allow it to go further. And he stands up very stiffly, and he ho is holding this cup. I must control and shatters the cup. And then he stands there sort of frozen. Yeah. Which I think is, it's a bunch of interesting sort of things that don't quite work, but our great cast is handling them really, really well. That's well, right. Yeah. Yep. This is senseless. I've thought it over. I'm staying. And this is where they go, no, no, if you stay, he'll just destroy the ship. We'll sign the, our death warrant if yeah. you stay. Which is logical because he would. I mean, he'd yeah. keep McCoy there and then destroy all of the whole ship of the right they would go on in their utopia the enterprise would be destroyed would not be able to warn starfleet about you know general order you know four against uh this planet right. so so yep. yeah mccoy you know it's like don't think you're doing us a favor by staying because you're not by right. the way i'd way rather hang out on talus four than hang out on <laughs> uh, yeah i mean they're just going to give me illusions of all sorts of adventures and sex and good food and stuff. <laughs> this, place, this place sucks. Yeah. But, and this is where Alexander says what he didn't say before. He's right. I should have warned you. They were treating you the same way they treat me, just like me. Only you fight them. Again, Michael Dunn is so good. All the time, I thought it was me. My mind that couldn't even move a pebble. They even told me I was lucky they bothered to keep me around at all, and I believed them. You could see the catharsis going on. It's like 2,000-plus years he has suddenly seen the truth that he didn't allow himself to see before. Absolutely. So, so Dan, here you have, you know, in, that, in the prior scene in Act 1, where Kirk tells Alexander, none of us have the power. Okay, and it's this beautiful, beautiful moment. And now, I think just as powerful, but for different reasons— Alexander is going, I thought it was me, but it's, it was them. It was them. It was them. And he breaks the big vase and he picks up a sharp object, clearly intending to use it as a weapon and to cut them because a cut will be deadly to the Plutonians. Give it to At me. At least let me give them a taste of what they gave me. Please, they're going to kill you anyway. You know that. In that case, what's the point in you dying too, Alexander? And you have another moment between William Shatner and Michael Dunn. Different from the other, like, aspirational one. This one is Kirk, like, reaching him for the last 2,500 years. You have held on to your dignity. This is not the time to lose it. Don't ever yeah. lose it. Don't, no. you, you'll, 
you'll be like, like, what was your like watching it? Like, what was this moment like for you when you're seeing Kirk and, and Alexander and Shatner and Dunn like connecting it in a different way? I, I completely understood Alexander's anger because, mm-hmm. you know, for 2000 years, he had been treated like a piece of crap, you know, being kicked around and made fun of and such. And so I did understand the anger. But, you know, Kirk says, and I think he says it even twice in this episode, he says, do you really want to be like them? Right. And and it's that moment that, you know, he makes Alexander stop and think. And he's like, you know, you're no better than them if you if you if you use the violence to serve what you want to have happen. And I think, you know, that moment, it, it starts to basically come to Alexander that, whoa, you're right. I don't want to be like them. I want to be better than them. Because and the that's reason- that's that's really what I got out of that episode. But I did understand his anger because for a moment, you know, if I was watching these guys who were who were basically friendly to me, made me believe that there was a better world beyond the one I'm on. Watching them be treated the way they were, um, yeah, I, I would have been pissed too. The thing that really struck me watching it, you know, just the other day for this uh, this presentation, is Alexander has a moment of weakness where he his anger gives in it, it to with his desire to hurt the plutonians right and then it's alexander's response which really got to me this time it's the first time anybody ever thought of my life before his own first time in 2500 years and alexander is not only feeling this moment but he's he's practically crying feeling like bad because he didn't warn Kirk, Spock, and McCoy ahead of time or with enough notice for them to turn around and beam the hell out of there. It's really like a centerpiece moment, just this great moment between Kirk and Alexander. And I was really moved by the emotion of, of Alexander. And it occurred to me that without question, the strongest performance of any actor in this episode goes to Michael Dunn. Oh yeah. Amen. There no question about it. You know, this this whole scene that we're talking about right now, um there's some really poignant moments there between Alexander and Kirk and some really profound acting from Michael Dunn. You know, I mean, you really can tell. I mean, there are moments where he, he you can tell he's about to cry. Yeah. Because he's he, you know, and it it uh for me it was very moving to watch that. Um it just it, it just further cemented for me what what a, a great character he is and uh and thank god they had a good actor that could bring that yeah to life because i don't know that at at that time they could have found a better acting actor little person than michael dunn i mean he he was He's a so true good. actor he wasn't just a little person in show business he was an actor yeah that's a great um, way you're, you're right well, it's funny, having done any casting, my wife is a casting director. Anytime you need someone that's special in one way or another, whether they're a great basketball player or can sing perfectly, you narrow the the pool that you're drawing from. So, and Michael Dunn, man, he was a big fish in that pool, I think. Yeah, the, the, one, the one thing that uh, you two have made me think is we, we live in the world today, and maybe younger people listening to this uh, don't realize how it's changed because today geek culture nerd culture is ascendant 
the the you know tech companies and internet companies and computer things those are the most powerful things in the world all of entertainment is run by all of the stuff that we were beaten up for liking when we no were no kidding right <laughs> and so and so we were the, born in the wrong time scott <laughs> well except except that we were formed by being picked on and by being dismissed and being told that the things we like weren't cool and that we so this moment with alexander rings powerfully true to the people that love Star Trek at the time. Whereas today, that's not the experience. You, you're really cool for liking Star Wars and Marvel things and superheroes. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, nerd culture has become cool culture now. Yeah. I, I just remember being a part of the syndication generation, loving Star Trek in the early 70s when it was in syndication. You know, I did not see it uh, when it was on uh, you know network TV. Me, I wasn't even born. Yeah. Until this episode aired and buying the photo novels, buying the poster books, buying the blueprints and the Miko toys and the uh, uh, the tops trading cards. I bought all that stuff and I would bring it into school and I would show it to my friends. And, you know, some of them would think, oh, that's cool. But most of them didn't. And yeah, for sure. I was totally picked on when I was like in middle school and high school for being a Trekkie. And like like when I left you know, school early, when I left seventh grade early to go wait out in line to see Wrath of Khan on June 4th, 1982, I totally got picked on. Today, it would be a friggin' badge of honor. Oh yeah. my God, you are so right. I mean, you know, Scott, you and I could share pictures of our bedrooms probably, and we would <laughs> both relate and say, oh my God, that looks just like my room. But you know, a, a story that you would, uh, I, I'm sure like, I remember, and this was later after the series, um, when Star Trek, the motion picture was coming out in 79 and I was a senior in a junior in high school, excuse me. And I had the record album, Jerry Goldsmith's theme from Star oh. Trek, the Motion picture. And I brought the record album to my art class. I don't know why, just because I just wanted to have it there. And I still remember one of the kids coming up to me and looking at that and saying, Good God, he says, I can't believe they got all those guys back together. He says, you'd think they could get the Beatles back together if they get all those guys back together. Oh, man. Wow. Oh, yeah, 79. You could have done that. I know. I know. Oh, if only. Well, if here, only. Here, here, but here's my other question. So all three of us were picked on for liking the stuff that we liked. Was there part of you that one moment or another had the thought of like, I want to go beat up those guys that picked on me. I'm going to go get them. I want revenge. <laughs> didn't you have did that I, feeling? Did I have my moment where I wanted to smash a uh, a vase and yes. take a sharp object and hold it to the throat of the someone who was picking on me? Damn right I did. Yeah. But the, and the Captain, Captain Kirk, Kirk yeah. The Captain Kirk inside of me said, do you want to be like them? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the fond memories I have, because in junior high is when uh, I really started becoming a massive Star Trek fan. And in my um, science class, uh, you know, you have the big tables where you, they can, you can do the science experiments and everything. And it, I sat in the back of the room and on the wall back there was a black and white picture of Kirk and Spock. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, why do they why does she have that? Her name was Mrs. Thornburg. I'll never forget her. And I don't know how the conversation began. But she was a massive Star Trek fan, and she found out I was a Star Trek fan. And so we just kind of bonded, student and teacher, talking about Star Trek. And at one point, she came over to my house after school one day and brought her Mego Star Trek figure bridge set. And, and it hadn't been opened, and she 
wanted to see if I could help her put it together. Uh-huh. And so my oh. mom is there and she's offering her a cup of coffee and we're sitting there talking Star Trek and I'm on the floor putting together her Mego bridge set with the figures. And we just had an amazing time talking Star Trek. And that was, she's one of my favorite teachers, as you can imagine. Yeah, sure, sure. That's awesome. (laughs) So now we're going to get into some Star Trek scientific deduction, because we ask, when did the the Plutonians started getting their powers? How could I forget that? It was exactly six months and 14 days after we got here that they started pushing me around. And would you know how many months supplies you brought with you? Four, I think. No, three. That's close enough, Alexander. Now we have the answer. Two to three months after they started eating the native food is when they got their powers. And then the next bit of deduction, and all of this I think is good Star Trek deduction. Why doesn't Alexander have the same powers? There must be something different about him. Let's take some blood from Alexander. We still got the blood from Parman, and we can compare the two um, because Alexander has the lowest amount of powers. Parman has the most amount of powers. They run some samples. The one significant difference between Parman's blood and Alexander's is a concentration of curanite, broken down by pituitary hormone. And this is this powerful mineral we heard about at the beginning of the show, and that is the answer. What's the solution? Let's have McCoy build up a big concentration of this and inject us with it. Which he does, by the way, <laughs> in a half second. Fast. He even says it's going to take him a while, and it's like a half second later, he goes, okay, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Pituitary hormones confirm the hypothesis. They also regulate body growth. Oh, you mean the same thing that kept me from having the power made me a dwarf? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a powerful, and you know, it's funny because it's the pituitary gland that creates, I mean... At that time, I mean, I know there was medical science looking into what caused dwarfism and such, but, you know, um, later years, uh, I went through all kinds of medical procedures determining why I was a little person. And, you know, it's the pituitary gland that had a big impact on why I, I was short. And that's the same way for a lot of little people. So I thought it was kind of a Somebody had done their homework, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I was impressed yeah. in 1968. Was that 68, 69 when they wrote this? Um, yeah, that they that that they had come to that conclusion because uh, that is true. And then McCoy gives them the shots that it took him no time to come up with. <laughs> um, and then they ask, what about Alexander? Well, since the curanite's broken down and injected directly into his bloodstream, it should work on him as well as us. Better, in fact, because he's acclimated. And I think at this moment, we would expect Alexander to say, give me the shot. Give me the shot. Give me the Hell yeah, take it. Give it. Uh, Bring it on. Oh, no. No, not after what they've done to me. Why not? You could conceivably take Parman's place and run the whole planet. And I, again, I like Michael Dunn in every moment in the whole episode. You think that's what I want? Become one of them? Become my own enemy? Just lie around like a big blob of nothing and have things done for me? I want to move around for myself. If I'm going to laugh or cry, I want to do it for myself. You can keep your precious power. All I ask is one thing. If you do make it out of here, take me with you. That's a great request. And a valid one, right? Take me with you. Get me the hell out of here is what he's saying. And you know, once again, it showed what Alexander, a giant of a man in a little body, because he chose the option of not being like them or having that power. 
I mean, I that once again, I, it showed me his character, and yeah. I fell in love with that character from from the first time I saw him. <laughs> I say something really weird. It honestly just shows how much I hate the elements I hate in this episode. That. I agree with everything you said about Alexander. It can't redeem the episode for me, <laughs> sadly, because I think he's awesome. I, yeah. I think the actor is awesome. I think the character is awesome. Uh, and then we hear the sound of the transporter, and there are Chapel and Uhura, who are obviously being controlled. They cannot speak, and they get pulled away just like our guys have been pulled away, and we hear... I guess we weren't sufficiently entertaining. And that's the end of Act 3. And get ready for Act 4, where the fun really yep. begins. <laughs> so back in Act 4, we see Chapel and Uhura enter. They're now wearing period outfits. And then Spock and Kirk come in in their outfits. Um, and Chapel and Uhura are genuinely freaked out. And this is, I will say, absolutely terrible writing, the way they handle this. Because they ask all sorts of questions. They describe their experience. We were forced in the transporter and beamed down. It was like becoming someone's puppet. I, I thought I was sleepwalking. I mean, I couldn't stop myself. And we start to hear little bits of laughter, and they're asking. Captain, what is it? What's going on? And Kirk totally ignores them. They say nothing to them. And he just turns to Spock and says, are you feeling the effects of the chironide? And they talk about having a slight flush. And then they go over and try to, you know, telekinetically move some fruit. And I'm like... Talk to Chapel and Uhura. They're scared out of their minds. <laughs> They're totally They're scared out of their minds. And you literally just turned your back on them and totally ignored them. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Good point. <laughs> um, and then we continue to hear laugh, laughter, and then these panels open up, and there are Platonians, and we hear Parman makes a speech about how they got here, and they formed a utopian brotherhood, and blah, blah, blah. He says some more stuff. So in Act Two, when Parman proceeded to torture Spock and uh, Captain Kirk. He was torturing them to get what he wanted, was from, which was for McCoy to stay. Right. In Act 2, he had a motive. I want McCoy to stay. How can I make McCoy stay? Well, I'm just going to keep torturing his friends until he caves in and stays. Now, this is different. McCoy has stayed. He's agreed to stay. And now this is all for their entertainment. There's no motive here other than to just act like corrupt gods yeah that's true and this is where you get into a weird thing about this the job of a tv show is to entertain me and so what the conceit of this show is is that somehow this torture that is made to entertain these sadistic plutonians that i'm also gonna find entertaining by sitting and watching it on tv and that is what i am not a sadistic horrible person i don't enjoy watching this and so you're taking minute after minute after minute to make me watch a thing that i hate watching and the first thing is what would be better than a serenade from the laughing spaceman so as spock proceeds to serenade both Uhura and Chapel. He sings a song called Maiden Wine, otherwise known as Bitter Dregs. Bitter Dregs. So where did this come from? Well, if you were a big Star Trek fan in 67 and 68, in addition to watching Leonard Nimoy on Star Trek, you would also be buying Leonard Nimoy's albums. 
he was cranking them out faster than the Fab Four in those days. So they were trying to figure out, well, we want to have Leonard Nimoy sing a song. So let's compose a song. No, I have a better idea. Leonard Nimoy has a new album coming out, his fourth album, which is called The Touch of Leonard Nimoy. Let's pull a song from that and do some cross promotion. So that is what they did. And that is why Made in Wine is the song that Leonard Nimoy sings as Spock in Plato's Stepchildren. I never knew that. That is incredible information. Way to go, Scott. Wow. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) I did not know that. Coming from you, my friend, that means the world. (laughs) That is so cool. I, I, I guess I haven't heard that album, uh, you know, of his. So that's, that's a piece of information I did not know. Well, I'm proud very to be cool. the one to tell you. <laughs> very, very cool. I didn't know it either, Scott. And it's, it's weird. It's still weird in the episode, but, and, <laughs> and you know, Nimoy has a decent voice, you know, yeah, he does. He's a good voice. Um, so the song ends and then we pair up with Kirk and Ohura and Chapel and Spock, but then Kirk and Spock switch places and then switch back. And we have some jokes about that. And now we have Chapel and Spock and she, and she, she says, it's really upsetting. I'm so ashamed. Please make them stop. We have tried. Please, please make them stop. I haven't the power. I'm deeply sorry. So here's this moment that Chapel has wanted since the Enterprise was spiraling out of control down towards the planet Psi 2000 in the naked time. When she told Spock in sickbay, I'm in love with you, Mr. Spock. And she's holding and caressing his hands, basically giving him the disease. And she has wanted him romantically for all of this time. And now she gets him in a way that she is being forced and humiliated, robbed of her dignity. And what what is she feeling right now? What do you think Chapel is feeling at this moment? Because she she can't be happy about the circumstances. Nobody would be. She says, all I want is to crawl away and die. Right. I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know that saying that the, the word rape exactly applies to this scene, but having your body taken out of your control and forced to kiss someone, even if it's someone you really care about, it's it is a horrendous violation that we're yeah, watching occur. It is. That's absolutely true, Steve. I agree. And of course, the Platonians just laughing at this. And then we cut to Uhura and Kirk and we are heading towards the kiss. And we are heading to what has been especially in recently after the passing of Nichelle Nichols. And we talked about this in our eulogy of Nichelle Nichols on a special enterprise incidents, honoring her and her greatest moments as Uhura. So this scene was filmed on day seven of the production of Plato's Stepchildren. Now, by this point, Dan, Paramount gave such a strict mandate to each and every director on Star Trek in season three, film it in six days or else. And a lot of the directors went over, some went over a half day, some went over one day or even a day and a half in the case of Tony Leader. In the case of Ralph Sinetsky, he was he wasn't even finished the episode, but he he was replaced because he was running behind. So for this episode, they were running behind because of all the the um you know the camera work and the 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 fishing you know line to make the objects move across. So now 
they're running a day behind and when they're filming the moment of truth. So before we get into the like how this was actually filmed, this moment has been referred to as, quote unquote, the first interracial kiss on broadcast TV ever. So I'm asking either of you or both of you, is it? Is it really the first interracial kiss ever? I thought it was, but I could swear that I've read somewhere that it isn't. Okay, you're right, Steve. Well, it, it, I, it, not only do I think it isn't, but I think we proved at least one of them that it isn't, both on Star Trek, but even way well before Star Trek, on the Ed Sullivan show between Kirk and I don't remember the actor's oh, name. Oh, the Alan of Troyes. Alan of Troyes. That is correct. As far, not including Lucy and Ricky, because basically Desi Arnaz Jr. was Cuban, but Cuban. the first interracial kiss truly happened on the Ed Sullivan show on November 16th, 1958, between William Shatner and Franz Noyen. And they would, you know, in about 10 years, be co-stars again on the Star Trek episode, Alan of Troyes. But they were filming the Ed Sullivan show, acting out a scene from the Broadway show that they were in, The World of Susie Wong. And Franz Noyen, her ancestry was either Vietnamese or Chinese, even she can't remember, but it's one of those which does make this the first true interracial kiss. Now, about six years later, in July of 1964, getting to, to a more specific moment between a white man and a black woman, you have a British soap opera called Emergency Ward 10. And on that soap opera in July of 1964, a white man played by the actor's name is John White, that uh, kissed, kissed a black Jamaican woman played by Joan Hooley. This, despite the fact that we're in the midst of torture that I don't particularly like, again, Michelle Nichols and Shatner are great in this moment. I'm so frightened, Captain. I'm so very frightened. That's the way they want you to feel. Makes them think that they're alive. I know it. But... I wish I could stop trembling. He gives her the terrible advice of try not to think about it. I'm like, you know, if my body's being controlled by someone's psychokinetic power and I'm being forced to, you know, kiss someone, I don't think try not to think about it is going to help me that much. <laughs> but what I do like is she says, I'm thinking of all the times on the Enterprise when I was scared to death. And I would see you so busy at your command. And I would hear your voice from all parts of the ship. Well, first of all, this moment, basically, I feel like, is Uhura professing her love for Captain Kirk? I don't think so at all. No, I didn't. I, I wondered that, actually. I wondered I, it, too, but I never yeah. thought it. So bringing the interracial kiss into the further into the world of Star Trek. So, yeah, okay, you could talk about this being the episode, but... Remember what a little girl's made of mm -hmm. in the first act when they reach Dr. Corby and they say they're going to beam down when Captain Kirk and Chapel are exiting the bridge. Chapel mm. kisses Uhura. It's a it's a friendly kiss, but it's really quick. Mm. It's just a friendly kiss. But you have a white woman kissing a black woman on broadcast television. Wow, I don't ever remember that. I'm going to have to go back now and watch that. 
Now, a year later, in Mirror Mirror, William Shatner and Barbara Luna. Barbara Luna is of mixed European and Asian descent. Of course, they kissed quite passionately. And the reason that I bring this up is because in terms of American broadcast television, as from what from whatever all the research I could do on American television, because I brought up the, the uh, British soap opera, that this is the first time on American broadcast television, a white man kissed a black woman. Now, the issue I have with this is that even though you have this moment where Uhura is expressing her feelings about the situation and her admiration of Captain Kirk, and this, this moment has been hailed as such a groundbreaking moment on television, and I'm glad that it is, but I would have been happier if this kiss came from true love and passion instead of them being forced to do it. That's the issue I have with it. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a huge, the idea that what is scandalous is just these two people touching their lips together, as opposed to dealing with the real issue. And what Star Trek should be saying is it would be okay if they're in love. Yeah, right. What what did Kirk say back in the second act or whatever? We don't see color and shape. Those things don't mean anything. And so the fact that this does seem to mean so much is, is a big deal. According to Nichelle Nichols, it was supposed to be Spock who kissed Uhura. Hmm. But William Shatner had it changed because he said, if anyone's going to get to kiss Nichelle, it's going to be me. I mean, I am Captain Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it is. uh, And while I don't love the moment, it is better that it's Chapel and Spock. For Um, sure. Well, well, here's the other thing, too. There's there's a lot to say about about the filming of this. So this was on the last day. And the suits, the suits came to the stage. And as Nichelle Nichols tells the story, this is how she tells it. Quote, I'm called into the front office where this gaggle of suits sits me down and says, now, Nichelle, honey, sweetheart, we got a problem. Well, what problem? I asked them. And they said, you know, the kiss, the kiss. And only now does it hit me. It's not the fact that Kirk and Uhura are kissing. It's the fact that a black woman is kissing a white man. I had no idea this was going to be TV's first interracial kiss. So I argued with them. We're supposed to be in the 23rd century, and this is Uhura, and we don't have racism where we are. That's very Star Trek of Michelle. She went on to say, also by now, Gene Roddenberry had come to the office and got into the act yelling, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. But the network wouldn't budge, and William Shatner stormed off to his dressing room, very upset and very angry, yelling, this is absolutely ridiculous, ludicrous, let's just shoot the whole thing and to hell with the South, referencing the South because that's what NBC was nervous about, that they would lose viewers from the South. Interesting. The one other thing is they keep cutting to Falana. And I'm just going to say it how I see it, which is it looks like this torture and horribleness is turning her on. Yep. I I thought that she was jealous. Well, that's the same. I think it was turning her on, but I think she was also jealous of because she had kind of a liking for Kirk. So I think it was yep. a little of both, to be quite honest. You know, when it came to actually filming the kiss, it was tried and it was tried two ways, one with the kiss and one without the kiss. But on the take where they tried it without the kiss, Shatner crossed his eyes to the camera and blew that take. 
They were already a full day behind and they were running out of time with the version with the kiss that made it into the show. And that is how this kiss made history. Let's get on with it. You are so impatient, my wife. Observe the doctor and learn. He's quite content to wait for the pièce de résistance. And then our guys get up and walk over to this bench with a bunch of weapons, a whip and knives and a hot poker. And Kurt gets the whip, Spock has the hot poker, and we have reached a whole new level of <laughs> horribleness. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Kirk's cracking the whip, but manages to speak and says, You're half dead, all of you. You've been dead for centuries. We may disappear tomorrow, but at least we're living now, and you can't stand that, can you? You're half crazy because there's nothing inside, nothing. And you have to torture us to convince yourselves you're superior. Once again, we have this idea of people becoming so powerful that they can only experience emotion through others. Yep. But Kirk could speak, but he couldn't still control himself. And he turns and Uhura looks up and just the image of a, we had a white man kiss an African-American woman a moment before. And now we have a white man standing over an African-American woman with a whip. Stop it, Tarwin. Stop it. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll stay here and serve you, but stop it. So at this moment, Alexander rushes Parman with a knife. Like, this was pretty ballsy for him to do, but Parman stops him, and he's about to really make an example of Alexander. This is a, this is a, a real make-or-break moment. Well, I think both Alexander and McCoy basically said, oh, we've had enough of this, you know? Yeah. You've gone too far. I mean, it's enough is enough, and that's why they acted upon it. He likes to play with knives very well. We shall indulge him. And Alexander turns around, the knife turns in his hand, and it's very clear that Parman is about to force Alexander to stab himself. And at this moment, Kirk tries to use the psychokinetic power again. And just as Alexander is starting to bring the knife in towards his body, it goes to the side. <laughs> So this is, I will say this is now the end of the torture. That was seven minutes and 30 seconds. Another seven minutes. So that's wow. 15 minutes total of this episode is torturing our crew. Wow. That's almost a third of the entire episode. Wow. But this moment is such a rousing moment because Parman says, Who did that? And Kirk is laughing victoriously, <laughs> throws down the whip, and I love, he goes, I did. I love it. I just love Kirk's like, I did it. Oh, <laughs> awesome at this moment. Impossible. Quite possible. And logical. And he tosses away that hot poker. Platonians, listen to me. The next one of you that tries any trick will get hurt. Not only do we have your psychokinetic ability... But at twice your power level, not twice mine. And what happens next, I don't like. I understand why it's here, but it is a battle between Parman and Kirk with Alexander as the pawn. Yeah. And I just really don't, I don't like Kirk using Alexander's body. I, I agree, Steve. That, 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 that's one part that bothers me. I agree. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's a hard moment to watch. Uh, Kirk yeah. doesn't have a choice because Parman is already using Alexander 
So if he doesn't do anything, he's gonna get get he's gonna get stabbed. But it is a sort of tug of war power struggle between them until ultimately Alexander gets the upper hand via Kirk getting into Parman's face, threatening to cut him. I beg of you, I'll do anything you say. I do not wish to die. Here's what I would do differently is that what I would do is instead of having Alexander be the pawn is that when Kirk stops Alexander from hurting himself, the knife gets knocked out of Alexander's hand and is on the ground. And then when Parman says not twice mine, he mystically picks up the knife that floats towards Kirk. So there it's a floating go. knife, not a floating Alexander. And then as Kirk is winning the battle, the knife is getting closer and closer to Parman's throat. And Parman tries to reach out with his hands to grab the knife. And his arms get, he, is that Kirk takes over Parman's body and moves him the way they've been moved throughout the the whole episode. Yep. There's, there I, like that. I like that. I like that. I think that would have worked better. <laughs> Good um, idea. Good idea. But Alexander is now ready to kill Parman and Kirk stops Alexander. Don't stop me. Let me finish him off. And Kirk says, we're back to these themes I really like. Do you want to be like him? See, and I told you that's the second time he said that to Alexander. Do you want to be like them? But what's great about the way the scene is, is shot is that, that, that Alexander is like ready to, ready to stab Parman. And, you know, it's a dramatic moment. And the music, the score is really swelling up to really emphasize the moment. And as soon as Kirk says, do you want to be like him? The music stops. It's silence. It skips a beat. And then you have Alexander really just laid into Parman, telling him how he really feels. And it's he's like standing over Parman. And it's it's such a great moment. I think it's really cool that we give Kirk's dramatic, triumphant speech to Michael Dunn. Yes. He gets yep. to say. Parman, listen to me. I could have had your power, but I didn't want it. I could have had your place right now. But the sight of you and your academician sickens me. Despite your brains, you're the most contemptible things that ever lived in this universe. And it was said so eloquently and beautifully by Michael Dunn. I mean, that was a powerful moment for Alexander. Um, and I'm glad they had him say those lines yep that's a great point that's a great point that they gave kirk's speech to alexander i never noticed yeah. that right and now parman is all apologies and i've learned <laughs> my lesson i promise everything will be fine from now on and they don't believe him they don't believe him and he even admits uncon parman admits uncontrolled power will turn even saints into savages and kirk's response very good at making speeches Parman. Just make sure that this one sinks in. I'm overside. <laughs> and he calls to Alexander, and the music is nice and triumphant, and he grabs his communicator, which somehow he was carrying in his toga? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah, good point. <laughs> and where in his toga was that? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Direct Enterprise. Scott, prepare to beam us up. I have a little surprise for you. I'm bringing a visitor aboard. Big smiles all around. What what was the expression on your face when you reached this final moment in Plato's stepchildren, Dan? That was the penultimate moment for me because at, at, at the end of that episode, and when I saw that moment that they were going to take Alexander with them 
up to the enterprise, I thought to myself, man, you know, what I wouldn't give to be able to beam up with Alexander and live in that world and see that starship. And, you know, that to me was, and once again, I got the goosebumps going again. That was such a, an amazing moment for me because they actually were going to allow Alexander to go, to go up to the ship with them and explore and see new worlds and be accepted for who he was. I, you know, I just, that was really a very special moment. And I, I can't tell you how much that meant to me. And, and that's why I had a picture that I had got. I told you I had my bedroom plastered. One of my favorite pictures was of Kirk sitting next to Alexander. And it was an eight by 10 I had purchased somewhere through a catalog. And I had it up there at the centerpiece in my wall on my bedroom. And every day I would look at that and I would remember the lines that Kirk said. And I would remember that he got to go up to the ship with with the crew. And that just, it made such an impression on me. And, you know, the only thing that all these years later is that while there have been little people off and on throughout various Star Trek, I have yet to see a Starfleet member that's little mm. on the ship, just walking down the hall, walking you know, on the bridge. It's You know, we, we pan across, and there's a little person over there working on the thing. Everybody, wow. every alien race seems to be about the same height. They might have a weird head or a different forehead, but there isn't anybody that's my height on wearing in Starfleet. Starfleet uniform. Yeah, yeah, wearing a Starfleet uniform. So that's my only qualm. I, 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 I put out there to the producers of all the new Star Treks. It's, you know, put somebody out there that looks that. like yeah. me. Let's make yeah, that happen. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Make it so. Excellent. Yeah, they make it so indeed. Dan, that's uh that is an excellent point. I mean, just because Plato's stepchildren stands out to me, you know, these moments between Alexander and Kirk. Yeah. Uh, I just thought that the the dignity in which all that was handled was so great, but you're it was never followed up by like saying, Hey, there's a little person who's captain of the USS, whatever. Um so I have a question just- for you, Scott. What do you think happened to Alexander? after he beamed up to the enterprise and Steve, you too, do you have any, I any think, thoughts? I think he did become a member of Starfleet because everything that Kirk was saying to him, everything, all the dignity, by the way, this is a great question, Dan. And this is exactly the kind of questions that we ask on enterprise incident, but like here, the guy's been there for all those centuries, more than two millennia. He still had these qualities that made him different. From the Plutonians. He still, he was a progressive, forward-thinking character. Exactly. He was perfect. He was absolutely perfect for Starfleet. Yep. I think he absolutely became a member of Starfleet, wore that uniform proudly. And what I would give to read even a story in like one of those like Star Trek books that come out all the time, or certainly in the case of Strange New Worlds, which takes place, yes, yes. you know, and is, is a great show, uh, finally, um, to, to show uh, an Alexander-ish character just treated just the same way that, you know, back in TOS, Uhura and Sulu and Chekhov and Scotty and Spock and everybody else was treated. That yeah, just even just sitting on the bridge at a, at a control station or, or as Pike's walking down the hallway of the, 
enterprise. You know, you see a little person in a Starfleet uniform walking past him. I mean, just even something as simple as that. But, you know, I, I digress from our episode. But, yeah, that's the only complaint I have. And, Steve, I didn't get your – do you think – do you agree with Scott and I that he joined Starfleet? I think it makes perfect sense that he would, but I don't think he does. And the reason I don't think he does is I think Starfleet is a little too militaristic for Alexander. I think mm -hmm. he is going to be a much more peaceful person. And I have two possible things. One is I think it'd be very interesting if he became a professor of philosophy specializing in Plato. <laughs> and, because, and actually finding out what Plato was actually all about. But the bigger yeah. thing is I think he becomes a professional do-gooder not a Starfleet one, but more like going from planet to planet to help people that are oppressed people like him. Well, I see, uh, yeah, I, I, I can see that. Great points, Steve. I can see that. Uh, my answer of Alexander joining Starfleet and being a proud member of Starfleet is based on my love for TOS. Me too. Because ultimately, as much as I love Next Gen, uh, as much as I love Deep Space Nine, you know, which definitely went in a darker route. And as much as Star Trek did get a little more militaristic by the time Wrath of Khan rolled around, which was something that Roddenberry had a problem with. Right. Um, but when I think of the Star Trek that I've loved all my life, uh, it's the Star Trek that I fell in love with. It's the original series. Yep. And the representation of the Federation and Starfleet in the original series is that's the version that I see Alexander being a part of. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree, Scott. I agree. Yeah. Yep. I same same exact feelings from my side of the picture as well. Well, it almost didn't end with this uh, that scene. The episode almost actually went a little bit longer because there was an early tag scene written where they're back on the Enterprise and McCoy has the psychokinetic power, and he used it to get this make Chapel kiss. Mr. Spock. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which would have made him just as bad as Parm. Oh my gosh. Thank so, God that didn't make it in there. Al, uh, oh, Arthur, wow. Arthur Singer said, nope, that goes. Oh. Uh, but the other thing it's interesting about, so by this point, just NBC and Paramount were really not putting any extra money into Star Trek at all. Uh, Fred Freiberger was really convinced that they had something special in their hands because of the kiss. But NBC and Paramount would not promote Plato's stepchildren. So Freiberger took money out of the Star Trek budget and put a bunch of ads in Daily Variety to basically say, hey, this next episode of Star Trek, you're going to see something you never saw before, a black woman kiss a white man. And like he really went, went for it. It did not move the needle at all, unfortunately. But at this point, Paramount, which I was shocked to hear when we were discussing uh, uh, the Tholian web that uh, Paramount really just, they hated Star Trek by this point. They just wanted to be done with it. One other thing, this is just a small thing is anytime that we invent some incredible new power and then conveniently forget it for the rest of all of Star Trek, it's always sort of bothersome. It's like, yeah. wait, you had the power to be, have godlike powers in a couple of hours. That would have been useful for a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> you know, that's true. I've thought that before as well, Steve. That's actually, a good point it's like we just forget that this power yeah. was at our fingertips and we just we don't have it you know i i agree scott did people have did other people have things to say about this episode well absolutely in fact some people who who weren't even 
on the show or behind the scenes in any way. Fred Freiberger's daughter, Lisa, said, there was one thing I remember growing up, and that's that my dad, Fred, was very proud that it was, in her words, the first interracial kiss. Freiberger's son, Ben, said he was pretty adamant about it. I think it was the reason that difference in race never meant anything to me. He was way ahead of his time with all those issues, whether it was equality of race or women's rights. And Fred Freiberger's uh, confidant, Peter Greenwood, said NBC did not want him to do it. So he said, you know what? I'm going to call Roddenberry and see if he'll back me on this one. So we called Roddenberry. Roddenberry said, I'm 100% for it. A lot of people have attributed the scene to Roddenberry, and in many ways, it was his decision. But the one who brought it forward to that point was Fred Freiberger, and he has never been given the credit that he deserves for that. Roddenberry himself said, it never occurred to me whether Kirk should kiss a Black person or not. I had, by that time, achieved a certain clarity about those things. As a matter of fact, long before Captain Kirk kissed Lieutenant Uhura, I kissed her many times. (laughs) That's funny. That's a good one. (laughs) One final note comes from Michelle Nichols herself, who wrote or who said, we had the largest amount of fan mail for that episode than any other episode. And it was all positive. Yay. Yay for Michelle. Here's what I'll say. I've already been pretty clear about the fact that as a whole, I don't like this episode. And really, if you if you gave me any movie and said, listen, there's some really good things in this movie, but one third of it you're going to hate, I would go, well, I'm probably not going to go see that movie. But I will also say that one of the amazing things about Star Trek is that we can, even in an episode that's not so good, have moments that are profoundly moving as we've heard about the moments for our guest. And I think that there are some elements of this that are as Star Trek as Star Trek can be. I'm glad that it exists, even if it's an episode I don't want to watch again anytime soon. So I agree. I completely agree. Dan, after, have you ever really, I mean, I know you've talked about this many times, but have you ever talked about it with the depth that you have on this podcast? No, uh -uh. this is the most I've ever had, the most in-depth I've ever had been able to discuss that episode and what it meant to me. And I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to do so because it's this has been fun and it's such an important episode that I'm really glad to be able to tell you guys that. And, you know, my one regret is, you know, through all the years I did the fan club, I got to interview so many of the guest stars, but Michael Dunn had passed away before that. Oh, I would have dearly loved to have interviewed him that would have been. And, and been able to talk to him about the episode and what he thought about Alexander but never got that opportunity, unfortunately. Well, first of all, I am thrilled that you were able to join us for this finally, and that mm-hmm. that you you shared just the depths of this of what this episode means to you. And I agree with Steve absolutely that you know there are episodes that yeah they're not great, but they have moments that transcend the quality of the episode itself, and that is certainly the case with this. That for someone like you or someone like anybody else on any other episode of Star Trek, that they can be so moved, so completely taken by something uh, that they watched on the show. And, and it would, it would just move them so greatly, regardless of whether or not the episode was all that good. I mean, I certainly had that experience watching the empath that just shows you how great Star Trek truly, truly is. And I feel 
after watching Plato's stepchildren for the first time in long, long, long time, after having this conversation with you two gentlemen, especially with you, Dan, because of just how important this is to you. And also, you know, I've been reading your stuff for decades, like literally decades. Um, so to have you, brother. Yeah, for, so to have this conversation with you, I mean, I'll tell you, but I think that before I saw this episode, it was one that I, I just thought, like, I don't like this one. But while I was watching it, I felt like there are things about it I don't like but I have come to like it more than I ever have because of those great moments, those aspirational moments that you can have, like Steve pointed out, 15 minutes of torture, but you can have just a superb performance in Michael Dunn and you can have the message of Star Trek so front and center, front and center uh, in, in, in ways that just like I go, this is, this is what it's all about. This is why this is, this is the spirit of Star Trek. This is what Absolutely. makes Star Trek, Star Trek. So that is why I think for the first time in my entire life, I've come to like Plato's stepchildren more than I ever, ever have. And that comes, Dan, that comes so much from you. That comes from this rewatch. That comes from a year and a half of talking about Star Trek on Enterprise Incidents with my great friend, Steve Morris. Thank you, Scott. And I tell you, I got to be honest. You know, I've always heard the criticisms of the episode. But I was always able to look past those because of what exactly you said, the message that I received from that episode and how it changed my life. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, if I live to be 100 years old, you can look back at your life and find defining moments. That moment that I sat down and watched Plato's Stepchildren, that was the, the, the moment that my life was going like this and then it went like this. Wow. And it was all all for the better. All, all for the, for the better. better. Indeed. Amen to that. So that's what we think of Plato's Stepchildren. We want to hear your stories. We want to hear how this episode or affected you or how other episodes of Star Trek maybe changed the trajectory of your life. The best way to contact us is on social media, whether you go to Facebook, where you can search for Enterprise Incidents, on Twitter, where it's Enter Incidents, on Instagram, where it's Enterprise Incidents, any of those places. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd also love you to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or YouTube. If you're on Apple Podcasts, and you haven't already, please leave a review. They're very, very important. The most important thing to get our show out there. If you're on YouTube, leave your comments. We love interacting with you there. And you can support the show right in the show notes is a link to Anchor where you, for as little as 99 cents a month. Oh, why are we talking about 99 cents a month? Up to $9.99 a month to <laughs> support the show. That's what helps keep it going. And for me, you can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris 1 on Instagram. And I looked back at the archives of my other podcast, The Cinephiles, and as we never went to ancient Greece, but we certainly went to ancient Rome. And you could check out our deep dives into films like Ben-Hur, Spartacus, more modern sword and sandal movies like Gladiator, and maybe my favorite movie from that era, Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Oh, yeah. Wow. Amazing. Scott, how would we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And like Steve said, please be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We love and are so grateful for the reviews that we get on Apple Podcasts. So it doesn't matter what platform you're listening to. Get just head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. And like Steve said, and this is this is really, really crucial. Head to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents. Tell us 
how Star Trek changed your life. Not the first episode that you ever liked, but how did Star Trek change your life? We all have our stories and what stories we shared on today's episode of Enterprise Incidents. So head over to our Facebook page. And while you are there, while you are at our Facebook page, make sure you follow us on our Facebook page because breaking news, we just passed 2,000 followers on our Facebook page. Everyone, For everyone who has been listening to Enterprise Incidents and everyone who followed us already, we thank you. And if you're not yet following us on Enterprise Incidents, please do so. So what is next? Our next voyage on Enterprise Incidents. Well, this is one that I, I think I would say this is a solid second tier episode, always very entertaining, has another Really risque moment that we'll talk about when we get into it, but uh, make sure you catch it fast or you will miss it in a wink of an eye. Wink of an eye is next on Enterprise Incidents. So join us for that one. And until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.